Welcome to the Corecast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Welcome, Corecast listeners. I have the distinct privilege of having Lance Davis here with me today. Lance is the CEO of JNF Canada. Lance, welcome to the Corecast. Delighted to be here. So let's talk first about you, about Mr. Lance Davis a little bit. Why don't you tell us where you're from, your journey, and how you kind of made it to JNF Canada? Great. I'll keep it short. Uh, I'm born in Philadelphia. I uh, I went to school in, at Tulane University in New Orleans, which is an odd place for a uh, nice for, Jewish boy. Exactly. Although uh, you know there were plenty of Jewish uh, friends at, at Tulane, I actually did uh, Jewish studies while I was there. I was so interested in, in these subject matter that I ended up getting a major in Jewish studies along with international relations. And I had thoughts at some point about going into uh, uh, something like diplomacy, working for the State Department or doing something of that sort. But um, I was always a volunteer in the Jewish community. Uh, my part-time job while I was at school to help pay for my uh, my expenses was I worked as a Hebrew teacher at the Communal Hebrew School. Um, and the principal... In Philadelphia. No, no, in no, New Orleans. In New Orleans. Right. So the principal said to me, uh, you know, you're a great teacher. You have a wonderful touch with kids. You clearly love Judaism. Why don't you consider getting a, a degree in Jewish communal service and make this your, your profession? And I said, what is Jewish communal service? And she said, you need to check out programs. There's graduate programs in it. In it. And so I, I followed her advice and I looked at a variety of different programs. I ended up at Brandeis, uh, and they have a specialized program that's probably the, the largest and the most, uh, most, uh, esteemed. And so I got my, uh, my master's of Jewish communal service and MA, uh, from Brandeis. And from there, I moved to Canada. I became the, uh, the Hill director at the University of Toronto. So was that a, a job application basically that you, you, you filled or? Yeah. Well, you you know, I had been working under Joe Pollack, who is uh, was the Hillel director at Boston University and was one of the legendary Hillel directors in in North America. Joe Pollack was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was uh, uh, actually from Montreal. He was uh, a uh, an Orthodox rabbi of Hasidic uh, distinction. I don't remember if he was Lubavitch, but he was definitely Hasidic. And he was running a Hillel, and I really found him to be a great role model to see how a uh, an Orthodox rabbi can run a pluralistic institution like Hillel. I thought it was incredible the way he re- related to all the students, regardless of, of their background, and what, what a spiritual leader he was. Um, and so Joe was uh, was a mentor for me. I worked for, for a year, and I thought it was the place to be. I thought, you know, campus is where the Jewish future is going to be built. It's the last time we have thousands of kids in one small geographic area. It's the last time we can touch them in, in an organized way before they go off to work for IBM and GM and whoever else. And, you know, they disperse, and then, we'll, you know, we can't gather them again. So I thought it was the place to be. So uh, I wanted to be in Toronto. I applied for, there was a job opening. Rabbi Michael Skoback, who you may know, was the previous uh, Hill director. So he uh, basically trained me and got me up to speed. And I had a number of wonderful years there. And many of the Toronto leaders today uh, were students in the mid-90s. So I see them, you know, running all sorts of institutions as lay people and as professionals. And it's an amazing thing to see um, the impact of their Hillel years while they were students. Before we move yeah. on to your yeah. progression, I'm just curious to get your take on campus life, Jewish yeah. campus life. And I guess 
uh, I don't know if you're in touch with it, but obviously we read in the news a lot about different types of things that happen on campus to Jewish students and uh, BDS and whatever it is. But so do you have any reflections about your time on campus? Was it indeed a time that you could make an impression on Jewish students? And to your knowledge, do you know, has it changed at all? Well, I have to say that I've lost a lot of touch with what's happening on campus now currently, so it's very hard for me to comment on it. Uh, at one point in my career, I was the national director for Hillel. We called it at that time the National Committee for Jewish Campus Life. And our focus was – I was hired right after the Concordia riots regarding uh, – uh, Netanyahu's visit to Concordia and the community said we need to do something about this this could never happen again and we created a uh, a strategy with respect to Israel advocacy and Jewish identity and I actually do believe that one thing that in my opinion that's important is that Israel advocacy and Jewish identity can't be separated uh, very few kids say you know uh, my experience on campus is just I'm going to advocate for Israel and I'm going to be an Israel supporter. And very few kids go on campus and say, my only interest on campus life is to do Jewish cultural things and Jewish religious things. Usually they're two sides of the same coin. The kid who wants to come to a Friday night dinner also will stand up for Israel. And the kid who will come for a rally in support of Israel can also come to a Friday night dinner and have a meaningful experience. So I really do think that it is important for uh, for identity and advocacy to go hand in hand because uh, they they supplement each other. They complement each other. So I, I really don't don't think we should work in silos. I think we should work with a more holistic approach to a Jewish student's identity. So uh, so I, it's really hard for me to comment on where things are are now. I will tell you that when I was working on campus, there were only a handful of campuses that were really problematic, and we really. Focus our resources on those places. Um, you could deal with you have finite resources. You could give every campus their fair share of dollars based on the population. Or you could diagnose and say, these campuses have a real sickness and these campuses are healthy. So we decided to focus on the, the sick campuses and we poured resource, resources into them and we hired the best staff and we provided the best speakers and we um, made sure that, that a positive Israel message was brought to these campuses. And I really think uh, during the time I was active, which is the late 90s, early 2000s, we made, we made a huge difference. The problem is, is that this problem of BDS and anti-Israelism and anti-Zionism is nefarious and it's growing and it's a, it's a constant problem. It hasn't been quashed and the, it's a sad reality that there are students still on North American campuses who show up and feel intimidated to be there. They feel uncomfortable wearing a kippah. This is really a sad reality for what universities stand for, what they're supposed to stand for. And, you know, I'm really proud that in Canada we have a very strong Hillel system and we have a great CJA organization who are uh, leading uh, our efforts on campuses. So we have the resources, we have the, the brightest people working on it. I, I'm really hopeful that we're going to see some, uh, some positive movement, and I think we've seen it. Uh, but, uh, but to be honest, I have to be frank, like I'm not an expert on what's happening today, but you should definitely bring somebody from Hillel to, uh, to speak about that. Okay, that that'll be the next forecast. Yeah. Okay, so you went from Hillel leadership to where after that? So I, I worked for the Federation Movement, and I did uh, uh, leadership development for the next generation, the 25 to 40-year-old age group, which for me was, was great because I was in that age cohort, and it was just about um, – uh, taking leaders that were already identified by their local federations across the country and 
making them stronger leaders. So it meant bringing them, we went, we would go to visits to Eastern Europe and see Jewish communities there and how our federation system is benefiting and supporting those communities. We'd go to Israel and, and see how we're investing in Israel and having a big impact. It was about conferences, training, um, all sorts of things to bring our, our leaders to the next level. So it was a great uh, entry to the federation world. It's a great entry to leadership development work, which I've always been interested in. And, um, and I, I loved it. And I did it for a short period of time, and I mentioned the Concordia incident with Netanyahu. So I was n- known to the Federation movement, so they said, would you make a switch in your dossier and take on a, a national Hillel role, and let's get the show on the road with respect to Israel advocacy and uh, and take this on. So the Federation movement really uh, stepped up with funding to ensure students had dollars to make it happen, and we did a lot of really interesting things. And I loved it. And after three years of, of working with Hillel, I just came to the point of... Uh, that I'd, I'd, I'd only worked with young adults, basically, people under 40. And I thought, really, it's time in my career to do something that's broader. So Calgary had a opening for a executive director of their federation. So I applied for that job, and I was hired, and I worked there for five years, and it was fantastic. Calgary is a great community. I highly recommend your listeners that haven't been to Calgary. Go visit. And um, the fact is, is that I... It was, I learned so many things in a small community because we were a small federation. So it was kind of like a jack of all trades. And then after a certain period, for family reasons, I wanted to be back in Toronto to be close to family. And I moved back here. And after a short period of time, I was hired by Jewish National Fund to direct their Toronto region. And uh, I've been uh, at Jewish National Fund since 2013, 2012-13. So it's been a great run. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's get into yeah. that run a little bit. So can you talk to us about Jewish National Fund, what exactly it does? I mean, I think probably when people think of JNF, they have certain associations, but I'm sure that right. there are other things that you do. So right. maybe you can help right. explain. So probably at the tip of your tongues, as you're about to say, you know, Jewish National Fund is about trees. Trees. That's it's right. not trees, it's about water. And yes, we're absolutely about trees and water, uh, but we do so much more. So the Jewish National Fund, we build the foundations for Israel's future. What Whatever is needed at the time, the Jewish National Fund is there. So 50, 60 years ago, when Israel uh, needed uh, forests to be planted, we came in and made it a worldwide effort, and we planted 250 million trees. Uh, Israel had a water crisis at the beginning of statehood. So they knew early on that we had to protect every single drop of water. So we started digging reservoirs and we've built 240 reservoirs worldwide. Canada's been a part of the efforts to ensure that we can recycle as much water as possible and to preserve every drop. Israel now recycles about 80% of its water, which is leading the world by leaps and bounds. And desalination, right? Desalination is, is a huge um, um, uh, bonus for to protecting Israel's water supply. JNF actually is not responsible for the desalination. That, that's a, uh, other, other research and development came, came up with those uh, solutions and built those plants. Uh, what our contribution to Israel's water has been, um, has been reservoirs. So basically they take uh, clean water that's been, uh, that's been utilized, you know, in industry, in your private home, whatever it might be, and it gets brought to the reservoirs. It sits in the reservoirs, these big, big tanks. Uh, there are holes in the ground, basically, and the water there gets treated, and it then gets um, cleaned to the point that it can it's no longer used for human consumption, but it can be used, again, for industry and for agriculture. So we're able to use basically every drop of water twice. So in a place like Canada, we're not even close to that because we have so much water. But in Israel, if you don't recycle your water at least once, 
the country couldn't couldn't survive. So, and we shouldn't underestimate, I guess, the importance of water because we know that in the Middle East, wars have happened because of water. That's, right? That's exactly right. So, uh, so you know, we've taken this responsibility, you know, quite seriously. Now, in this day and age, now when we're in the 21st century, Israel doesn't need us to dig new uh, new reservoirs. And as you mentioned before, desalination is a huge benefit to uh, to the water supply. So, Israel is now at this point water secure, which 20, 30, 40 years ago, you couldn't imagine Israel living in the Middle East being water secure. Right, it, I remember they had commercials on Israeli television all the time, you know, warning people, and there was an image of somebody yeah. who was withering away, right? And and there were a lot of scare tactics and what have you, but I yeah. guess that it has changed. Right, uh, like it probably, for those who have been visiting the country for 30, 40 years, it, it's changed so dramatically over this period of time, you can't even recognize the country now going back, you know, let's say two generations. So it just speaks to what an incredible place Israel is and how uh, the people have, have made this country blossom and and uh, for anybody who hasn't been there for 20 or 30 years, get on a plane right. and go. It's it's an incredible country. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So, JNF's other mandates, you were right. saying. So, we, we build the foundations of Israel's future. So, today, what does Israel need? We identify that Israel has at least five generations of social infrastructure needs. And what we mean by social service infrastructure are things like... Uh, Things that benefit the disabled, things that benefit, uh, you know, abused women, the, uh, facilities that will uh, help uh, injured veterans, uh, anything that that facilities that that are needed to make sure that those who have challenges aren't left behind. So we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So, um, so for example, um, just to give you a few examples of what we're uh, we're doing, we're building a, uh, a physiotherapy and hydrotherapy center for wounded veterans in Ashdod as part of the new Beit HaLochem project that's being built there. Um, in Rishon LeZion, we're building a home for abused women because, frankly, there aren't enough homes in Israel to take care of unfortunately what's becoming a societal problem abused women um were and their families we uh, there's unfortunately so many children who are developmentally disabled it's it's really so so challenging and difficult for the families so we've built a whole host of resources to ensure that, that people with disabilities have places to go a place to live resources for after school things of that sort and uh, PTSD, unfortunately, has become a mental health issue in Israel greater than many, many other places because of the stress and the strain of the terrorism and the rocket fire and this and, this and that. So we've built a, uh, we're under construction right now of a major PTSD center in Jerusalem. Uh, we're constructing right now a uh, an animal-assisted therapy PTSD center in Sterot for the children of that community. So uh, we identify real social challenges facing Israel and then try and build the infrastructure to address it. And one thing I do want to emphasize is that we don't do do it all by ourselves. We put in a certain percentage of the money, whether it's 30%, 35%, and then we find other partners in Israel to help make up the rest because we're not the rich uncle of 50, 60 years ago. The way we invest in Israel is through partnership. And so we come in and we find two or three organizations that want to work with us and we make it, and maybe sometimes also the Israeli government will put in a grant and we make things happen. But JNF Canada rarely will fund something all on its own because we really do believe in uh, that Israel is a strong country and that our dollars can be a catalyst to unlock other dollars so that we can really make something special happen. And one last thing I would say that's really important to bear in mind is 
you know, I keep talking about it. Israel's this great country. It's a strong country. It's a dynamic country and it's all true. But a huge percentage of its GDP goes towards security and military. And because of that, it's just a reality. Israel needs it. It's life and death. And because of that, less dollars are available for social services. So that's one of the reasons why JNF is so anxious to intervene in the social service sector because Israel just, if it's a matter between a life-saving um, security matter or you know building a uh, you know, PTSD center for children, they have to pick the life-saving matter. So we can come in and help build that center and be the catalyst to get other people to get excited about it. And we can make something happen that wouldn't naturally happen. And that's the sweet spot for us. And uh, much like Canada, we don't have enough. We're a wealthy country. We don't have enough money through the government to do every single thing that we need for social services, which is why we have a booming charitable sector, because Canadians are generous. And so much like Israel, much like Canada, Israel needs a booming charitable sector, and we as diaspora Jews have an obligation to do our part to help our brethren in Israel. So how do you go about doing that specifically in terms of a project? How do you identify a project? How do you uh, get those partners? How does that work on, right. on the ground? So we have um, a projects manager in Israel, and her job is to actually find inventory for us. And we work with a whole host of organizations that have inventory. So we work with Karen Kayem at Israel. We work with Alut, Aleh, Beit HaLochem, you name it. Uh, we, you know, we've created a, can or have created a partnership with the, with them. So, uh, our projects matter in Israel constantly brings projects back to us. I visit Israel three or four times a year and I'm constantly looking for projects that will help build our inventory. And also Israelis come to Canada, uh, on fundraising trips and things of the sort and they'll make presentations to us and say, would you consider adding our project to your inventory? So we, we build up quite a, a, a broad inventory and sometimes on a national project, our board of directors will say, this is our project, this is what we want to do, and this is, we're all going to go out from Vancouver to Halifax, and we're going to all raise money for it. And sometimes it's uh, donor-driven. You know, there's a major donor who wants to do something to help disabled children. So we'll bring to him or her three or four ideas and say, do any of these speak to you? And if so, we're able to make the uh, the shidduch between that person and that project, and we're, we're thrilled to uh, to do it. Uh, JNF Canada, our sweet spot for the projects is that, um, as I was saying before, we do 30 to 35% of the project, we focus on the labor involved in building the project because uh, our mandate is to help indigent laborers, people who otherwise would be unemployed and living on welfare, get employment by doing simple tasks like laying bricks, putting on a roof, digging a foundation, things of that sort. So we're making sure that people who normally be unemployed can be employed, and the fruits of their labor is a social service building, structure, facility, whatever it might be. So in many respects, it's a double mitzvah. So this is really the, the sweet spot of JNF. And we really take great pride in that we're able to, uh, to help people who otherwise would be uh, unemployed and indigent. And we're also able to help build buildings that have a profound impact upon the lives of Israel's vulnerable. Uh, what a privilege you have to be able to make that impact. Um, can you talk for a sec now on the other side? How do you go about doing the fundraising in Canada? Mm -hmm. What does it look like? Right. Who are the donors? Do you, what, what techniques can you use? You know, yeah. give us a picture of what it looks like. Right. So we, we, our fundraising is, uh, built on many different levels. Um, we have event-based fundraising. Uh, that mainly targets uh, the younger demographic. Um, we know that one of the ways we need to engage the under-40 population, um, 
they are the lifeblood of, of any organization, especially JNF. We need to ensure that the 25 to 40 year old age group gets connected and plugged in and feels great about what we're doing and joins at some point as they become more familiar, joins our leadership. So we'll do things like, uh, uh, baseball, uh, softball tournaments, hockey tournaments. We just did a spinning class for Israel. So we'll do all sorts of activities that speak to this age cohort and bring them out. And we're able to make a, a simple JNF message to them and have them do something fun that they enjoy. A party for Yomat Smooth, things of that sort. So that is one of the ways that we raise money because they will, you know, buy their ticket and that's part of the ticket goes to the cost of producing the event. And the other portion is dedicated to charitable purposes. Uh, the second thing is we do campaigns. So our biggest annual campaign is Tu B'Shvat. That's the Arbor Day of the Trees, annual every, you know, generally February, January time. And so although historically it's always been about raising money for trees, as I mentioned, we've planted 240, 250 million trees. Um, We still need to plant trees, but not in the same pace that we used to. So we have a whole host of options. So you get to pick your project when you make your annual gift. So you can give it to trees or you can give it to an R&D center or a PTSD center. So we give people options, but it's really, it's an, it's an outbound call. We call thousands of Canadians every year and say, will you support Israel? And for some people, it's their only Jewish conversation they have all year round is that one JNF call. And, you know, we're honored and thrilled to make that call. And, uh, and we get donations from $18 to $18,000 on the phone. So, but by and large, this telethon is built on the 18s, 54s, $100, $200 gifts. And that's great. And we bundle together thousands of gifts and it becomes quite significant. And then our most important fundraising is we do an, uh, a gala in every major community annually. It's called the Negev Dinner. And we usually honor uh, a person of influence and uh, a community leader. And uh, those dinners are, are, are where we do our major gifts fundraising. And each dinner has its own particular project we're raising money for. And through these dinners, we're able to raise millions of dollars to uh, to support Israel. How do you select those dinner guests and how do you actually get them? Because I know that, you know, Mm -hmm. Stephen Harper, for example, was one of the honorees a few years back. So, you know, I'm sure every Jewish organization in Canada probably said, we want to have Stephen Harper. So how does JNF get Stephen Harper? Well, how, how we got Stephen Harper is a, a whole, whole story, but the reality is, is that like, it's few and far between of the times you want a prime minister, a sitting prime minister, you know, is the right person and, is available and willing to, you know, be, be honored. That's, it's, it's really an outlier. Uh, Stephen Harper was, I, is, to the best of my knowledge, the only sitting head of state, uh, that JNF anywhere in the world has, has honored. You know, there's never been a sitting president or a sitting prime minister in, in Great Britain. As far as I know, it's never happened. He's really unique and we're so blessed and so lucky they were able to honor Stephen Harper. Um, but nine times out of ten, uh, we honor community leaders. So they might be captains of industry. They might be uh, people who, who've done important social service roles for the community. A whole host of, of, of different people, you know, come to mind. So um, it really is a chance where we look look out into the community and say, who's done something really profound for the Jewish people over the last 10, 20, 30 years? Who deserves to be honored? And then we'll approach that person and say, you know, you're worthy of being counted amongst all this pantheon of community leaders that we've been honoring for 60, 70, already 70 years now. You know, would you want to be a negative honoree? And often people say no. I don't like being honored, and that's fine. Some people say, you know, no, it's not that I don't want to be honored. I was honored two years ago, and, you know, how many honors can I take? Sometimes it's, you know, I'm just not 
comfortable asking my friends to show up at a dinner to be around. So there's a whole host of reasons why people don't want to do it. But what we try and remind people is that in one night, there's no better way to raise money for Israel than through the negative dinner. In one night, you can do something so profound and raise hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars to do something in Israel. So by getting involved with the JNF and the negative dinner, you can identify something that's meaningful to you that you're passionate about and address that issue through one gala dinner. And that's really something that's profound. And that usually seals the deal for those people who are, I guess, on the fence. It it depends. Uh, sometimes you have to ask a person six times. And, you know, and it takes you a long time to warm that person up. And sometimes it's the first ask you make and they say, I've been waiting for you to, to ask me to do this. <laughs> it really does, does depend on, on the, the dynamic of the person. But, um, you don't want to twist somebody's arm into doing it. If they're not excited about doing it, they probably won't be a, a great honoree. Um, and honorees don't have to do the heavy lifting. We build a committee around them who do the fundraising, the event planning, and things of that sort. But the honoree, is the the centerpiece of the uh, of the campaign, and if the honoree isn't excited about it, the team working with him or her won't be excited about it either. So you need to find someone who says, "I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to help build the land of Israel, and you know I'm delighted that you know you picked me." So um, so if if it really requires a lot of arm twisting, we generally don't go there. We'll just say thank you for your time, but you know we obviously you don't want to do this, and we're not going to force you into doing something you don't want to do. So we like to find people who you know, want to achieve something profound and we become the vehicle to achieve it. I'm curious what the dynamic is like with some of these wealthy philanthropists. Obviously, mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about, you know, doing tournaments and mm -hmm. spin class and you're aiming for, I think, probably a different cohort. But what is it like um, discussing, being in touch with making something compelling yeah. for a you know a very wealthy philanthropist right. how do you make that connection right. it's a great question and i think every fundraiser thinks about it you know how do how do you make that connection to your uh, your major gifts uh one thing that i always approach uh people with is a simple question you know would you like to solve a problem most people if given the chance to solve a problem Say, yeah, I'd like to solve a problem. And then we can bring to them a, a an issue that people are facing in Israel. There's not enough beds for abused women in Israel. You know, could you help us solve a problem about creating a new shelter so we can take care of women and their families who are being abused? You know, there's a problem in Israel in that children who are disabled, severely disabled, can't go to a regular dentist. They need to go to a specialized clinic, and there's so few of them in Israel. Would you help us build a clinic to take care of these very, very sick kids who need dental care like every other kid. Could, you know, is that something that you'd like to help us solve a problem with? And sometimes the problem, it's not up their alley. They say, you know what? I'm not really focused on special needs kids. That's not my, my focus, but I have a friend who is, and I'll make that connection, which is great. So they, they've opened up the door and we can have that conversation again. Sometimes it is the sweet spot and, and a good fundraiser actually knows before they go in, you know, Richard, I know you're interested in special needs people, so I'm going to bring that up to you. If I knew that you were really interested in, in, you know, people living in the periphery, I'd come to you with problems that we need to solve living in the periphery. So it really depends on, on who the, the, you're contacting, and a good fundraiser will, will do his or her homework to make sure that, you know, you're not bringing projects to them that are in left field. Um, but by and large, that, that's really the way I, I see it. And, um, and when people say no, 
it's really okay. I don't take it personally. Um, we are going to find somebody to help us build that dental clinic or to build that shelter. And it just won't be you, and that's fine. We're going to, come hell or high water, we're going to find somebody to do that because it's too important for it not to be built. So we'll just speak to somebody else, and that's part part of the job. But you, at a certain point, you learn to have thick skin, and you don't take it personally, and probably the person isn't giving you a gift because they're already overcommitted for philanthropy. It's not because they uh, don't want to support or they're cheap or they're miserly. It's probably they have too many things cooking, and you just have to say, that's amazing. A lot of good things you're doing, and I respect it, and keep it up, and I'll talk to somebody else. But I'll never say to somebody, don't give to that charity so you can give to us. That's just uh, unethical. Uh, every charity is important, and JNF uh, is important, but it's no more important than any other other cause. But hopefully, people will realize, most people could do more tzedakah than they're actually doing. If you really look at your bank account, and your investments and your holdings carefully. Most people could do a little bit more. And, you know, if they want to do it through JNF, we're thrilled. So I have a perhaps somewhat naive question, uh, but I think there's a point to it. Why do you think that Israel has become such an animating issue for the Jewish community in general, but also in particular the community uh, or members of the community who are a little bit less connected. Like, wh- what is it? Why, why is it? You know, for the past, we're so fortunate to have the land of Israel, but, you know, for the past 2,000 years, right, there was no JNF, um, obviously, when yeah. there was no Israel. So what what is it and why is it that it's so important? Well, uh, for each person, their connection to Israel is, is unique. But, I mean, you said it, you know, in your introduction to the question. You know, when we think about it, for 2,000 years, we've lived away from our ancestral homeland, yet we've never forgotten about it. Three times a day we talk about Zion. It's it's in our blood. I mean, when we think about our grandparents, you know, dreaming about visiting Israel, you know, today you get on a plane in like 12 hours, you're there. It's, it's an amazing thing. So uh, certainly for the older generation, there was, you know, there's two great epochs of modern Jewry. One was the Holocaust, and one was the creation of the state of Israel. And the, the, the depths of our despair was the Holocaust. And the whole world realized if only there was an Israel, there would not have been a Holocaust like this. There would have been a homeland that people could have sought refuge in. So there's no question that, and don't get me wrong, the Holocaust did not lead to the State of Israel. The State of Israel was well on its way since the late 1800s. The wheels were in motion. The Holocaust might have been a catalyst to create the state a little bit quicker than maybe uh, it was intended. But um, but the creation of the State of Israel was the one of the high, highest of highs for 2,000 years. We've been without a homeland, and now we have one. And it was precarious. I mean, you and I weren't alive in the late 40s and 50s when things were really, it could have gone sideways at any time. People talk about 67 as being the most anxious time where, you know, people thought that they were going to be pushed into the sea. And 67 going from anxiety to exuberance. It's an amazing thing. But I I will say that, you know, you know, people in our age cohort, you know, remember, um, you know, the, uh, the more vulnerable Israel. But I'd say in the the younger, the millennial age cohort, you know, they know the strong Israel. They know the high-tech Israel. They know the Israel that has, you know, everything that any modern Western country has. So we do see in studies that younger people don't have the same 
connection to Israel as uh, as older people or, or maybe more middle-aged people. And that's something that we want, we need to fix. And things like Birthright are a fantastic program to address it. Getting people to Israel to fall in love with it. There's no better product uh, than getting people on a plane. The problem is it's very expensive. So we do our best to bring a taste of Israel to Canada. Lots of organizations do that, and that's amazing. But frankly, the, the only way to really get people to fall in love with Israel is to get them on a plane and to see it themselves. And sadly, um, we it's a very expensive and difficult undertaking to do so. So um, so I, I have high hopes that uh, for the next generation that they are going to carry the torch like you know we have, like our parents have, like our grandparents have. But um, But we can't be... Uh, we can't take it for granted that they will. So we really do need to invest in the education of, uh, of the millennials and, and younger to ensure that they do feel passionate about Israel. And, you know, uh, I love it, you know, because I got sent on a trip when I was 16. That was the turning point for me. If I didn't go on that trip, I really don't know where my life would have ended up. I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you right now if I didn't have that, uh, that opportunity. So, to pick up on that, then, if you look at the demographic surveys and all the information about where some of the parts of the Jewish community are going, right, not all of the data looks good, right? Much of it doesn't. Right. Yeah. So um, what do you think, maybe we're looking at things from a higher level at this point, but what do you think are some proposed solutions, how the Jewish community could address some of this disconnectedness, because I would imagine even for, for your organization in particular, I would imagine that, you know, if you're looking at a younger group of people who aren't connected to the state of Israel, then they may not want to give, but that has ramifications for the community as a whole. Right. Uh, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I do think it's about emotions. Um, you know, a connection to Israel is not only an intellectual exercise. Uh, we're very good at providing the information that people need to appreciate what Israel is and what it stands for. Uh, Sija, uh, quite a number of years ago, came, came up with this shared values strategy, meaning the strategy was how do we educate people, Canadians in particular, about Israel? Let's talk about the values that we share, like democracy, like rule of law, like respect for uh, diversity, things of that sort. So when if you're talking to let's say a, a gay person and you want them to appreciate what Israel does and you can bring all of these interesting things about what Israel does to protect gay minorities uh if you're talking to a person who's really into high tech and they're an engineer or they're a computer scientist and you can show them and demonstrate all of the incredible cutting edge things that are going on in Israel right now it is no longer an agricultural country it is a first world high tech superpower you're talking to a person who's really excited about the environment you know as i said before Israel's recycling 80% of its water nobody else is even coming close there are things that we we share in common that make Israel so much like Canada. You know, we all, as Canadians, we love Canada and what it stands for and, and the country that we live in. And we can, you know, share, we can help share those values, but it's an intellectual exercise. You know, okay, so Israel has a con, uh, follows the law and Israel respects rights of minorities. Israel, you know, it's, that's important and it's nice. How do you make it emotional? That's the, that's the secret sauce. I don't know how you make it emotional until you get people to Israel and to see it and to touch it and to feel it. And that's why I'm a big supporter that, you know, we got to maximize the kids getting to Israel, whether it's through birthright or any program, 
uh, where we can and and having them stay for an extended period of time. But um, but I'm not convinced that you know reading a book about Israel or going to a museum about Israel is going to have a profound impact. Um, meeting Israelis on the ground in Israel and falling in love with the country and the people that that's the secret sauce. Interesting. Um, now, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, discuss with you an angle that we have at the COR, um, which is that we know JNF for your commitment to uh, Kashrut and having kosher events, but also as usually having our, our largest uh, kosher events of the year. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, your your commitment to, to why... Right. Kosher is yep. so important for the organization, but I'd also be interested to hear a little bit about the uh, logistical effort in putting together, you know, dinners with thousands of people. Right. Well, I, I'm really glad you brought it up, and I'm I'm really pleased to have this conversation with you because we've had a long-standing partnership with with Core. Um, we have a policy nationally uh, that all of our events. All of our events to the public are, are kosher. Anybody who shows up at, at a JNF event needs to know that when they uh, arrive, if food is being served, uh, they can eat it. And uh, we take that responsibility really quite seriously. And even if it's one person showing up who expects kosher food to be there, we're not just going to have a, a side dish just for him or her. Everybody's going to eat the same food. Nobody's going to be made to feel uncomfortable with a separate meal while people are doing something else. So we, we really take this responsibility seriously. Obviously, in other c- communities across Canada, there's other kosher agencies who are running their their dinners. But here in Toronto, uh, we uh, we look to core to uh, to run our our uh, the kosher around our events. So I'll just bring up two in particular. Uh, one is our annual golf tournament. For 18 years, we've been having a, a golf tournament. We always go to a private course. And by definition, they're not kosher. And core has to work around a very difficult kitchen, very difficult conditions, having kosher uh, facilities on the ninth hole and the fourth hole, extremely difficult to pull off in a, uh, in a, in any context. And then also to do it in a setting where the main kitchen is not kosher and everything needs to be kosher. It, it's a huge challenge. And we have to ha- send you a mashkiach who's a scratch golfer. That's exactly yeah, right. Thank you. I knew okay. there'd be a joke yeah. coming sooner. Okay, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Got, yeah, we dropped it. Um, so, uh, it's, so it's, it's an amazing undertaking. And as I, I, we were talking about before, you know, of the, of our golfers, very few, uh, expect us to have a kosher meal. And many of the Jewish golf, uh, organizational golf tournaments are, are not kosher anymore. So, uh, we take it really quite seriously. And our board of directors stands behind this policy. And it's, it has been, been brought up. People have said we'd save money, we'd save time, we'd save effort. Let's just make some of our ends not kosher. And we haven't backed down on it. So, you know, as a com- person in the community who takes community seriously with a capital C, um, we've got to be kosher. Can I, can I just, before you go yeah. on, I, I wonder if it's not only that you want to be accessible if there's that one kosher consumer, but wouldn't you say that at your, your heart, your ethos, you mm-hmm. are a Jewish organization and what is a Jewish organization if the food is not kosher? Right. Would, would, yeah, it's a value. A- absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, not all of our events have food there. So if there's no food involved, then obviously there's no kashrut and we, we do do lots of events. That, you know, believe it or not, there is a Jewish event without food, but very few. Oh, hard for me to imagine. Very, very few. But yeah, but when, when food is being served, that's right. Like this is a Jewish value. Just like we don't do any work on Shabbat. So rest assured, most of our staff are not Shabbat observant. But they know that our policy is do not send an email, do not post a tweet, do not do anything 
on Shabbat. Wait till the you know uh, stars go out on Saturday night, and then you're allowed to go back to work. But even if it's a private email between them and uh, their board president, they're not supposed to be sending any correspondence, any kind of work, public or private, uh, dur- during uh, Shabbat hours in their uh, in their region. That's great. That, that that and that I kind of is the philosophy. Also, the Israeli government, Israeli officials, right? They don't yeah. they're not supposed to do right. public events on Shabbat, and they right. also in public eat, eat kosher and right. what have you. Yeah, very much so. So uh, and people say, well, I can time it on Friday so that it'll just get posted on Saturday, and I don't have to press a button. And we just say, just don't. You know what? Like, if it gets posted at 7.30 on Saturday night as opposed to 6 o'clock, who cares? Posted at 7.30, it really doesn't make a difference. And um, so we, we take that that quite seriously. And same thing with, you know, Yom Tov. Uh, you know, our offices are closed. Uh, you know, the great majority of our people use it as a long weekend. We take uh, it very seriously that um, we we observe the, the holidays and Shabbat as a Jewish organization. And, you know, I, I say proudly, you know, we are the Jewish National Fund with a capital J. We have many non-Jewish supporters, so you don't have to be Jewish to be part of the JNF family. We love our non-Jewish supporters. It's fantastic to have non-Jews say, we stand by you shoulder to shoulder. That's amazing. But as a Jewish organization, you know, I begin every staff retreat with, uh, with some Torah learning because I think it just sets the tone that this is, we are a Jewish organization. We should Learn a little bit of Torah during a staff retreat. Um, uh, of course, we don't compel anybody to do anything that they don't want to do. But as a group, we um, we really make an effort to um, to honor and to respect uh, you know the Jewish traditions. Right. Um, that's great. So, and sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. So, you were going to talk about some of these large mega oh, events yes. and and how you go about right. doing the, right. the kashrut. So, it's not how we do the kashrut; it's right. how you do right. the kashrut. But so, what I will say is like the the greatest example was the Stephen Harper dinner, uh, 2013. We had 4,000 plus guests, uh, in the Metro Toronto Convention Center. Um, the dinner was on a Sunday night. <clears throat> so CORE had to come in, um, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to prepare the facility. It was a three day koshering process. And then of course the caterer, you know, had to get worked in there as well and they had to get some of the you know they worked at their local branch and then they brought the food to mtcc it was a huge undertaking and of course when you have to get things done over shabbat because basically what happened is they did a ton of koshering over uh on friday saturday the place had to stay dark and then sunday first thing in the morning like or rather saturday night as soon as Shabbat went out, they went back at it again. So we had to keep uh, the MTCC dark for basically three days to put off, pull off a evening event. So we had to actually pay the MTCC to stay dark. Um, most organizations, you do a Sunday night event. The caterer comes in on Sunday morning. You cook the food. You have your event on Sunday night. Thank you very much. So this was a enormous undertaking with lots and lots of people. And um, I'm sure the uh, the mashkichim who are responsible for it are still uh, making up for the lost sleep because it was a round the clock operation. And and you know the reality is is that you know we knew that we had to pay for the services. We're not expecting Core to donate you know thousands of hours of manpower for free. Uh, we paid for it because this is part of what it means to be a Jewish organization is to provide a, a kosher meal. And uh, we're, we're proud. Um, you know, uh, this is part of being a good Jewish citizen is that you, uh, you provide um, kosher events. And uh, I, I stand by that. So I, I really, uh, you know, uh, 
value that you know people are willing to work around the clock and go sleepless nights and to stay downtown over Shabbat when their family is in Thornhill or somewhere else because they are needed the minute Shabbat goes out. I really respect that. Right. I think that's what I recall the, the head Moshkiach who was doing it had to, had to stay downtown, uh, in order to mm-hmm. capture every minute. And I think that that was considered the largest kosher event in Canadian Jewish history. Yeah. I don't know if we called Guinness to check, but that's I, uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but as far as I know, that's the line we've been telling people and I stand I by it. it. There actually, there's been many, uh, kosher events with, with, more than 2,000 people, absolutely. But uh, as far as I know, breaking 4,000 is still a, a Canadian um, record. And as far as we know also, we also believe it's the largest event ever held for a Canadian prime minister, kosher or not kosher. Okay. Nobody can remember there ever being an event for a sitting Canadian prime minister where more than 4,000 people came to a dinner. So we take pride on both levels. Okay. Yeah. Well, we take pride in uh, the JNF, that it is such a fantastic organization helping Israel. And uh, we take pride in the CEO, Lance Davis, for stopping by the Corecast. If people want to get more information, I assume that they can check out the JNF website. JNF.ca. JNF.ca. And they can help you continuing to build the land of Israel. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure to be here. I'm glad we got to do this. Lance, thank you for coming on the Corecast. Well, that's our show for today. I know it's so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast. <laughs>